Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama part illegal immigrants. Well, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Welcome back to another action-packed week on 2020 Vision, the United States Study Centre's weekly podcast tackling the issues dominating the campaign in the race for the White House in 2020. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and this week we're looking at public opinion in Australia and the United States on a host of issues, but particularly the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 US election. President Donald Trump had plenty to say about that investigation over the weekend when he addressed the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, in Maryland. Let's have a listen to some of those comments. But they fight so hard on this witch hunt, this phony deal that they put together, this phony thing that now looks like it's dying, so they don't have anything with Russia. There's no collusion. So now they go and morph into, let's inspect every deal he's ever done. We're going to go into his finances. We're going to check his deals. We're going to check. These people are sick. They're sick. I saw a little shifty shift yesterday. Oh, it's the first time he went into a meeting and he said, we're going to look into his finances." I said, where did that come from? He always talked about Russia. Collusion with Russia. The collusion delusion. So now we're waiting for a report and we'll find out whether or not and who we're dealing with. We're waiting for a report by people that weren't elected. You put the wrong people in a couple of positions and they leave people for a long time that shouldn't be there. And all of a sudden, they're trying to take you out with bull****, okay? Joining me today is political science lecturer, Dr. Sean Ratcliffe. Sean teaches public opinion and political strategy and also manages the United States Study Centre's polling partnership with YouGov. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Drew. We're still waiting to see what sort of evidence is contained in Robert Mueller's final report and whether that's likely to sway public opinion. But you've conducted some polling recently with YouGov on this very issue. What does it suggest about what Americans are currently sort of believing um, in terms of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russia in 2016? So like on a lot of other issues, Americans are pretty evenly divided on on whether or not the Trump campaign worked with agents of the Russian state to influence the 2016 US presidential election. About 40% say they do believe there was some uh, involvement and another 40% approximately believe they did not. And unlike a lot of other issues, this really comes down to partisanship. Almost all Democrats believe that there was some sort of collaboration between the Trump campaign and and Russia, but the vast majority of Republicans don't believe that there was any sort of interaction. Uh, One of the other questions you polled on was whether Americans believe Trump would last a a full first term, and if he did, whether he was likely to win re-election in 2020. What did you find there? So about 30% of Americans overall believe that Donald Trump will win re-election in the 2020 US presidential election. However, Just like with the Russian investigation, there's a really big partisan split on this issue. Uh, Almost all Democrats believe he'll lose, but around 70% of Republicans think he'll win re-election. 
You polled more than um, 1,000 Australians on these questions as well. Did you see much of a difference in the results between the American and Australian responses here? Yeah, so like with many other issues, Australians are less divided on partisanship than Americans are. So so there still is a bit of a partisan difference there. So, so coalition voters are less likely to believe that Donald Trump had some interaction with American uh, with Russian agents and uh, more Labor voters believe that he did and, and coalition voters are a little bit more likely to believe that Donald Trump uh, will win re-election, but the difference is far, far smaller than it is between Democrats and Republicans. Okay. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about um, uh, this this political party affiliation and how that's a pretty good indicator of where you'll stand on a particular issue. Is that the same in your polling with Australian voters? Are you seeing a, a big split no matter what the issue, depending on party affiliation? Yeah, generally speaking, that's the case. Uh, so what we've seen in America over the last couple of decades has been this uh, process that's called uh, party or ideological polarization, where voters are, are sorting into political parties or adopting the positions of political parties across a whole range of issues. So now it's getting increasingly difficult to find an issue where Americans or Republicans and Democrats don't disagree. Uh, so, so things that are political, obviously, like race and economic issues, whether the Trump campaign worked with Russia, trade, uh, but also other things. So if we go back a few decades ago, most people didn't mind if their children married someone that voted for the other party. So if you're a Democrat, you didn't mind if your, your child married a Republican. Okay. Now we're seeing fewer and fewer Americans be even happy if their children brought home a Republican or a Democrat uh, for dinner. <laughs> it's the new uh, guess who's coming to dinner. Sort yeah, of situation. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now it's, oh no, my, my kid's bringing home a Democrat. Like, what, what's going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. My, I've, my children are ruined. What, you know, <laughs> who, who did this to them? Um, whilst in Australia, we, we do have some of that and we always have, but it hasn't grown a lot. We don't see any evidence that polarization has increased. There's always a certain amount. And a certain amount of polarization is healthy in a democracy. You want your parties to represent different um, ideals, different interests in society. And that's not a bad thing. But it's when it gets to this point where the parties can't agree on anything. Yeah. And what we've seen in the United States over the last few decades is there's less and less that the parties agree on. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so once you had moderate Republicans and moderate, moderate Democrats in Congress and they could agree on a lot of issues and you could find some compromise, there are almost no moderates left uh, on either side, far fewer than there used to be. So. Gosh. Um, in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan was considered very conservative. If he was in Congress today, he would be one of the most moderate Republicans. Um, John McCain, uh, the recently uh, deceased senator, um, is, was it, towards the end of his term considered very moderate by Republican yeah, standards. Yeah. He was a Reagan Republican there. He had similar sort of ideological positions as Ronald Reagan in the 80s. So he wasn't considered moderate at all then. Um, so you see this huge shift over a few decades, and it's not that John McCain became more left-wing, it's that the party moved to the right on a bunch of issues around him. What are the big policy issues that continues to dominate elections in Australia and will likely dominate uh, the 2020 US presidential election is immigration. Um, you wrote in the Washington Post last year um, uh, that the US was by far the most polarised by party on this particular issue. Can you explain why that's the case as opposed to somewhere like Australia in the United Kingdom? Yeah, so uh, immigration is an interesting issue in the US. Uh, so overall, Americans are no more anti-immigration than Australians or, or British voters are. Uh, so with the election of Trump, I think a lot of people thought, oh, we're seeing this rise in nativist sentiment, this rise in opposition to immigration, and Americans have had enough of a large number of people coming from other countries um, and changing the nature of American society. But we, we don't see any evidence of that. There's no increase that we can see in public opinion polls 
in anti-immigration sentiment. If anything, it might have actually gone down a little bit yeah, in okay. recent years. Yeah, since since 2015 when, when Donald Trump initially announced his candidacy. Um, but what we find is the reason why immigration looks like such a big election issue and why it did seem to play a lot of a large role in 2016 was the the voters have sorted almost perfectly into the parties, voters that are very nativist. And, and we used uh, their positions on, on three different issues around immigration to sort of code voters based on how nativist or, or not they were. Uh, almost all the very nativist voters, the voters that on all three questions provided the sort of anti-immigration position, yeah. were Republicans. And almost none of them were Democrats. So we're seeing almost perfect separation on these issues uh, into parties. So, so Americans as a whole aren't very anti-immigration, but Republicans are. Um, so compared to the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom or the coalition, the Liberal National Coalition in Australia, uh, Republicans look much more nativist than their centre-right comparison parties in these other two countries. Whilst the Democrats are actually less nativist than the Labor Party is here or the Labor Party in the UK is. So, so the overall sentiment is similar, but how that plays out uh, in the political system is very different. And how much is that related to the fact that there's a lack of minor parties in the United States? So, you know, sort of in the UK, you have these sort of more sort of nationalist anti-immigrant parties coming uh, coming up in sort of this minor party system. Is that is that the reason that we're seeing more of that in the Republican Party? Because there aren't these minor parties to to handle that kind of uh, sentiment. That's certainly part of it. Right. So, so in the in Australia. You've got a number of options if you've got positions that aren't mainstream. So, so if you're very anti-immigration, far more so than the average uh, average voter, you've got, for instance, One Nation yep. as an option. Uh, or if you're, you know, much more left-wing on on a number of issues, including the environment, you can vote for the Greens. Uh, the same in the UK, you've got the Liberal Democrats, which provide a particular niche for voters that don't have sort of your standard set of political preferences. And you've got the UK Independence Party for your voters that are anti-immigration or anti-Europe. In the US, while there are minor parties, the way the system is set up so that uh, it's very difficult for those minor parties to win elections, yeah. not just presidential elections, but Senate and House of Representatives too, uh, means that voters do tend to cluster into the two major parties. And so what we've seen is these voters that are very anti-immigration have, have generally ended up in the Republican Party. Um, so that's certainly part of it, where they, they basically don't have anywhere else to go. They've managed to find a position within the Republican Party, and then Donald Trump in particular has given them voice. So if we think back to the 2015 uh, Republican primaries, yeah. uh, he was pretty much the only significant candidate that was strongly anti-immigration. So if you think of Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, even Ted Cruz, they were much more moderate on this issue than Donald Trump was. And their rhetoric, I mean, they weren't left-wing on immigration, right? No, they, they but had, a lot of them were themselves um, children of, of migrants. Sure, absolutely. And, and Jeb Bush, um, his, his wife is a Spanish speaker right. as well, yep. and he speaks Spanish fluently. Um, so, so they were uh, certainly, I think, had much more nuanced positions and their rhetoric they used in particular was not very attractive to um, nativist voters, even if they did want to toughen up border security and they, their policies certainly were, you know, were a bit tougher than, than the average Democrat position, but they were, were more nuanced. Um, and Donald Trump appealed specifically to more nativist voters, um, particularly with his signature wall policy. Um, and, and that is part of it. The other side of it as well, though, is once again, we go back to polarisation where on almost every issue, we see the party system separate itself on, on between Democrats and Republicans. So 
once upon a time, immigration was a relatively bipartisan position. There were pro and anti-immigration politicians on both sides up until, to some extent, 15. Um, but once again, like uh, these other issues, like guns, like abortion, which are not really ideological or party ideological issues in Australia, yep. um, the parties have taken sort of opposite positions on immigration and the voters are following them to some extent, either changing who they vote for or in some instances changing their position to match their parties. So now um, the Republican Party is to, to some degree at least becoming the sort of maybe not anti-immigration, that's too strong a word I think, but you know, somewhat more sceptical on immigration at least party, whilst the Democrats have become very much the pro-immigration party and, and they want to take a much less tough position on, on immigration than the Republicans. The coalition government in Australia has gone quite hard on this issue in the lead up to the federal election this coming May. Let's have a listen to some of their rhetoric of late. If you have a valid claim, you will not be resettled in Australia. You will never live in Australia. I don't want to see Australians who are in waiting lines at public hospitals kicked off those waiting lines because people off Nauru and Manus are now going to access those health services. Who on earth, who, but who on earth would be kicked out of their homes? Just explain that to us. Uh, look, because it seems look, um, the government's overreaching again. Well, well, you know, that is, you're quite entitled to be a commentator. You're quite entitled to express your opinions. The point that uh, I'm just making is that, is that the statements that were made earlier this week are statements of fact. That is, uh, if you bring more people to Australia than, uh, you know, obviously, uh, than otherwise, if you bring people to Australia that otherwise wouldn't have come to Australia, clearly uh, they will be uh, accessing services that otherwise would be available to Australians. That's a plain statement of fact. Sean, if this issue of polarisation is about the prevalence of minor parties or to some extent the prevalence of minor parties, do you expect to see much of a hit to the minor party vote in Australia come May, given just how hard the coalition has gone on this issue in recent months? Um, they've taken a lot of oxygen away from parties like One Nation, haven't they? Yeah, polarisation doesn't necessarily have much to do with whether or not there's minor parties. I mean, that might exacerbate things in the in Australia if you've got voters that aren't represented by the major parties. Instead of pulling their party away from the centre the voters can switch to a, a different party. So so that might have an effect. Um, and certainly the coalition's uh, border control policies could take some oxygen away from One Nation. Certainly they did do that to a certain extent in 2001 with Tampa. Uh, whether or not that works this time will remain to be seen. The One Nation vote has come down a little bit in recent months. Uh, but part of that, maybe more than anything, it has to do with One Nation's poor organisation. Yes, they haven't had a good couple of months. <laughs> well, you could argue they haven't had a good couple of decades. <laughs> they tend not to be very good at organising their party. So they get a lot of interest. Um, certainly our research, the research behind the, the Washington Post article you mentioned, we've looked at these, these views in Australia and there are a lot of voters that I think would naturally be One Nation voters, certainly well above this five or so or six percent they're polling at the moment. If they were a well-organised party, I have no doubt they'd do as well or better than the Greens. They've got as many native, you know, natural voters as the Greens do in Australia. The big problem they have is that they can't get organised. They can't field good candidates. They can't run good campaign operations. Uh, and the coalition, obviously, by by taking a position that makes them look less attractive, exacerbates that. But I think the coalition is never going to out one nation, one nation, right? And if they were well run, just as Labor struggles to contain the Greens, one nation could, I think, double their vote. Uh, so, so I understand why the coalition's doing what it's doing. It, it wants to limit its right flank. The, the danger they'll have, though, is if they go too far, 
they might lose voters in, in inner city and middle suburban Australia where some of these positions, you know, detaining sick children on Nauru, for instance, might not seem so palatable. One of the other areas you've looked at with you, Gov, in the past couple of months is the so-called trust deficit. Um, both Australians and Americans have significant trust issues with their federal governments, which I don't sort of think anyone would be surprised about. But where you do see some differences in, is in areas of trust uh, when it comes to media and expertise with uh, people like university researchers. Um, Australians tend to be a lot more trusting in those institutions than people, don't they? Yeah, so we did find a quite large difference and we weren't necessarily, we were expecting a bit of a difference, but the size of the difference blew us away. So we found Americans on average were quite a bit less trusting than Australians with a lot of these essential institutions of civil society. But the real difference we f- was Republicans. Right. So Democrats didn't look too different from Australians, but Republicans on a, on a range of issues had a lot, much lower level of trust than Democrats and, and coalition voters in Australia. Oh, right. Okay. Um, looking ahead to the May election um, in Australia and the 2020 election uh, in the United States, what does your research suggest the big issues are likely to be for voters? Obviously, 2020 is still a little way off, but um, is this going to be another case of, of, of your party affiliation kind of dictating what you're likely to be concerned about? Certainly in recent decades in the US, party ID, the, the, the party you feel... Um, connected to is generally predicts your vote pretty well. So the 90% approximately of voters will vote the way they say they identify. So yep. if you if you identify as Republican, you'll vote Republican most of the time. Even with Trump in um, 2016, some people thought Republicans might hold their nose and vote the other way or not vote, and that wasn't really the case. Republicans turned out and voted for Donald Trump in, in 16. So we don't necessarily have a strong reason to believe they won't do the same thing in 2020. Does that extend to things like issues, though? So uh, if you... Uh, uh, affiliate yourself with Republicans, are you more likely, according to the polling, to care about issues like uh, trade or the economy as opposed to Democrats? Have you found anything in that area? Yeah, there are there are some some differences, absolutely. So so Republicans have followed Donald Trump a little bit and and have become a bit more trade sceptical. Okay. And and that they do say that is an important issue. Um, what we tend to find though is at the end of the day, the big issue that will define the 2020 election, at least this is certainly how the past has played out, is the economy. Sort of not necessarily just specific, you know, issues like trade, but is there a recession yep. or, or is there growth? Are there jobs or is there unemployment? Uh, so I think if if Donald Trump, if, if the economy is going quite well in 2020, Donald Trump probably has a reasonable chance at re-election. Now, predicting exactly what that chance is is, is difficult this far out. But if there's a recession, and, and remember, it's been over a decade since the last recession and America generally has a recession every 10 years. Uh, if there's a recession, Donald Trump's chances at re-election get a lot smaller. Uh, one of the other issues that seems to have been a bit of a sleeper that has, has reared its head again recently is this issue of climate change. Um, you're seeing it uh, sort of dominate discussions among Democrats at the moment with this uh, talk of the Green New Deal plan. Um, and it's also been front and centre in a few of the by-elections and the marginal seats that we just mentioned here in Australia. Has that surprised you that, that this issue has kind of come up again after about 10 years of sort of being non-existent? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. Uh, and that's because obviously for those people that are concerned about climate change, it's one of the number one issues. Yeah. Yeah. But this seems to have filtered into sort of areas that you wouldn't usually see it. So the people out there doing the polling are saying this is this is an issue that's sort of popping up again. I, I mean, is there any sort of reason that you can see behind that, why that's become concern again? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think only because the scientific warnings are becoming more um, urgent yeah. that that at least with a certain segment of the population, uh, 
you know, I think that uh, some people are listening to those and, and yeah. they're getting concerned. Yeah. Uh, and hot, I think hot attempts during summer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It, it, you know, people listen. Some people at least listen to these things. And even you know, there are farmers in rural areas that that are facing severe drought and have been for so long. Um, that that you know, saying, well, we need to do something about this. You know, you see the Murray Darling and and the the health of the river system, and and people watch this and they feel like something needs to be done. So I don't think this issue is going to go away um, unless it turns out that all the science was wrong. And all of a sudden, there's no problem. I don't think it's going to go away. So, so it will keep, I think, rising. And then it will go away for a while, but it will be temporary. And there are certain demographics that are more concerned about than others. You've got a wealthy, well-educated inner city electorate. These tend to be the places that are the most supportive of, of strong action right. for climate change. So not a big surprise that those areas um, see, or, or voters in those areas see these issues as, as important. And obviously, Warringah, you've got this really interesting case where you've got an electorate that's normally very liberal voting. Uh, the Liberal Party easily wins on first preferences most elections, and their two-party preferred vote is well over 60%. Uh, but on, on a lot of non-economic issues, you know, same-sex marriage, climate change, which yeah. you know, has an economic dimension but also a non-economic dimension, these voters are far less conservative. So even though they vote liberal in huge numbers... Tony Abbott is probably out of step with his electorate on some of these non-economic issues. Yeah. So, so he faces this unique position where he's incredibly high profile, incredibly tied to a, a number of highly salient non-economic issues like same-sex marriage, like climate change, and he's out of step with his own electorate. And, and that's what creates a potential... Um, weakness for him. Yeah. And no longer leader, right? So he hasn't got the glamour of being the leader of the party. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So he faces this problem where if he's faced with a, a, a competent, credible, independent challenger, as we saw in Wentworth, he, he, he could be in trouble because if they're, especially if they're centre-right on economic issues, so if they're generally similar to a liberal but a, a very moderate or, or, or socially progressive liberal, sort of a Malcolm Turnbull-esque kind of um, candidate, but running as an independent, Tony Abbott, I'm not saying he would lose, but I think you'd have to take the challenge fairly seriously. And, uh, and so that creates a complication for the coalition in Australia with climate change and, and similar issues. And I think there, there is concern and, um, and support for action. But on the other side of the coin, um, if a party takes strong action against climate change, it can energise voters that don't really care about the issue per se but if you tell them all of a sudden their electricity is going to go up in price, their, their fuel is going to go up in price, their groceries are going to go up in price, or they're going to pay more tax, uh, they can be energised the other way. So you saw that with Tony Abbott between sort of 2010 and 2013 where he used the issue quite effectively to bludgeon Labor into submission. And, and you mentioned the Green New Deal uh, in the US, um, potential there for Republicans perhaps uh, where – and th this might be a case of overreach with the Democrats too. They've seen an opening with an unpopular president, concern about climate change growing. Uh, and this is the, the more progressive camp of the Democrats yes, seem to be pushing this, right? Rather absolutely. Than sort of, yeah. yeah, yeah, the left flank of the Democratic yeah. Party. And it's not just a climate policy, it's also an economic policy. So it includes um, a number of economic initiatives as well as climate initiatives that effectively will have a redistributionary effect. And now they say the reason for that is to sort of smooth out some of the pain that comes with transitioning to a low-carbon economy. So, so they recognise that people lose their jobs, for instance, or see pay cuts, so they, they say that they need to then redirect resources to minimise those impacts. But that obviously gives the Republican Party an opportunity to use some of these really big 
um, policy changes to attack the Democratic Party. All right, John, we'll leave things there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Not a problem. Thanks, Drew. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. Thanks this week to the Bubba Mara Brass Band, Maiden, Broke for Free, and Ketzer for their musical contributions, and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.